0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program has been brought to you by Many Kitchens, the one-stop shop for all things foodie. Discover the best artisanal foods that America has to offer. Shop for more at manykitchens.com.
0: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and today we're going to be talking about something very sweet. We're talking about candy. When you bite into a nice, sweet, chewy chewy piece of chocolate bar or uh, your favorite hard candy or taffy or whatever your choice is, how do you feel about it? You feel guilty? Like it's a guilty pleasure? Are you really enjoying it? Do you think you're eating something nutritious? Mm. All of these things are wrapped into... The candy wrapper. We have some very mixed feelings about candy in our culture, and it hasn't always been that way, but it does have quite a history. In fact, the candy business itself has quite a history. And with me today is the candy professor, Samira Kawash. Samira has written a lot about candy and has done a lot of research over the years on candy. She has written a book called Candy, a Century of Panic and Pleasure. She has, Samira has a PhD in Literary Studies from Duke and is Professor Emerita at Rutgers University. She has a website called candyprofessor.com, and she logs all this information in this website, but gladly we have it now in book form so we can all enjoy it as well. And Samira, welcome to the show. Well, I'm glad to be with you today, Linda. Uh, Tell me, you say that um, candy in our culture carries so much moral and ethical baggage with it, and you say that, that we think of it fundamentally in a different way from other kinds of food. Do we think candy is food?
1: Well, I think this is one of the most fascinating questions about candy, really. What is it? I mean, we definitely eat it. In fact, we eat quite a lot of it. You know, the um, most recent figures say that it's about 25 pounds per person per year that is at least out there to be eaten. i mean, not saying you're eating the 25 pounds, but somebody is. So, you know, that's a lot of stuff to be out there to be eaten. And yet, if I say candy is food, you know, most people say, what? Of course it's not food. Um, but then what is it you know we have the stuff that we eat but we're not quite feeling like it's food in fact we're quite sure it's not good for us and I think there's a kind of stew of real ambivalent feelings about what it is that we're eating when we eat candy
2: exactly and and yet you can go down the supermarket aisles as you've pointed out and there are a lot of foods that have a lot of other bad stuff that maybe we should feel guilty about but it because it's you know a savory food we don't think that it's bad for us
1: well this was so interesting to me when I started thinking about candy, and especially I was the mother at that time of a young three- or four-year-old, and really the question for many of the mothers that I knew was, you know, what kinds of food should I let my precious uh, my precious daughter eat? What's safe for her? What's nutritious for her? And candy really seemed to be like the maginot line. I mean, people really lined up around candy in very dramatic ways, and especially the kind of Um, you know, the criticism and a kind of moralizing criticism that would come when you would offer candy to a young child. Like, I wouldn't let them touch that. That's, you know, going to make them, you know, hyperactive. That's going to hurt them somehow. And it really seemed, when I looked at it, kind of extreme and also out of proportion relative to really, you know, a little bit of jelly beans or a little dum-dum lollipop. It's a small amount of sugar. Um, we give our kids apple juice all the time. We give them Teddy Grahams all the time. We give them Popsicles. I mean, all of these other things are sugar and chemicals and and, and colors, too. Yet when it comes to candy, there seems to be some extra boost of panic associated with it.
2: Right. Well, in your um, explanation of the history of it, I mean, we now think of candy as those empty calories, so to speak but we weren't even way back when in the in the in the 19th early 19th century we weren't even thinking calories we didn't even that wasn't even a, a phrase we attached to anything nutritious so even back then candy was a popular item tell me a little bit about the history of candy
1: well there's a very dramatic break in the history of candy right around in the late 19th century if you go back before then candy was beloved, but it wasn't very available. Sugar was expensive because it had to be refined by hand. Candy was expensive because it had to be made by hand. And that meant that candy was available, but in small quantities. So children might enjoy that at Christmas time. It might be a part of a holiday. There might be a festive gathering in the evening to do a molasses taffy pull or something like that. But, you know, candy was occasional and as an occasional treat. Now, This all changes quite dramatically after the Civil War in the United States when sugar becomes much more available and much cheaper, when machinery starts being used to manufacture candy, and all of a sudden the the candy is everywhere and it's very inexpensive. Mm. And so this kind of new way of of consuming candy as, you know, how often do you eat it? How much do you eat? How does it fit in with the rest of the things that you're eating? These questions become much more pressing when candy becomes so ubiquitous and so right. inexpensive.
2: And then what, if it's cheaper to produce, then it's produced faster. Or if, when it is produced faster, it becomes cheaper. And there's more of it around. And then our desire for it increases. I mean, it's, it's this whole um, snowballing effect. but. <laughs> Um, before that, when candy was handmade, there it was a very labor intensive process, was it not? Oh, yes,
1: and I think it's really interesting to look back at some of the early candy implements. One of my favorite is um, panned candies. That's where you have the hard candy shell. Now, that that was made by a very skilled confectioner who had to shake by, with their hand, shake a pan over a hot fire while they're pouring the sugar syrup over that candy and shake it and shake it and, shake it and let it dry and shake it. This could go on for days depending on how large of a, of a little comfort candy you wanted to create. So, you know, when something is taking days and days to make just a pan full, obviously you're not going to be able to go down to the store and, you know, have it a huge barrel of it. Right. Um, and, you know, similarly, even for hard candies, you know, before the before the advent of machines to mold the hard candies, they had to be cut by scissors by hand. So, you know, you could only make
2: so much that way. Hmm. Well, tell me then, along came the, the famous Necco wafers.
1: <laughs> well, it's 18. 18- 48, and this is when American candy historians sort of date the beginnings of the U.S. candy industry. Um, Oliver Chase was a pharmacist. He was making um, medicinal lozenges, and these would be like a, a paste of, of sugar and medicines, you know, to take your medicine. Um, and also, people would eat these sugar lozenges unmedicated as a candy. But he's making them by hand. So we have to roll this this dough out and then, you know, shape the little lozenges by hand. But they were in such demand, he finally said, "How could I make more?" Ah, and he hit on a machine to do it. It was a hand cranking machine to um, cut the lozenges, and it looked very much like um, what, you know, our, our hand pasta makers. You've got the crank and the little pressing wheels, and the, the, the dough goes through and gets cut into shapes. And so now instead of rolling it out by hand and cutting it by hand, he could just crank it through his machine. And, ba-da, you know, this is the candy industry's infancy where all of a sudden there's so much more candy that you can make so much more quickly, and also the skill level really goes down. Anybody can turn this crank, right? You don't have to have the care to be able to cut them out by hand, and similarly for many other kinds of candy, too. You know, just unskilled boys in the factory could just, you know, turn the cranks and push the buttons and whatever it was going to be to make that candy come out. So it really was the beginning of a huge transformation in machine-made candies, and the massive quantities that we know today really made possible by those machines.
2: Uh, and then, of course, with the these machine made candies in such quantity, then there was the birth of the candy shops as well, so it, which would specialize only in candy. you in fact um, did some research and found that in nineteen o eight in Brooklyn alone. There were over five hundred candy shops.
1: At that Can time. you imagine what that must have been like? I mean, there's a candy shop on every corner in that day, and you know, as many candy shops as bakeries, practically. And this is not the day when you know you don't have grocery stores to get your 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 stuff. So you have a, a bakery in every neighborhood, a tobacconist in every neighborhood, a candy shop in every neighborhood, and you know, this this the. So the candy is everywhere, it's being manufactured in huge quantities, but people have to learn to eat that much candy, and this was, it's so fascinating to look at the way that the candy manufacturers struggled with the problem, because the tradition in the 19th century was that candy was a luxury, and it was for special occasions, but now they have all this candy to sell, so we, they need people to eat candy a lot more than they used to, and so a lot of the early marketing efforts of the candy industry were to teach people an important lesson, candy is a food, eat it every day like an everyday food instead Mm. of an occasional luxury. And really so much effort went into this selling of this idea that candy is a food.
2: Well, when did the fear factor set in? When and how? Because all of a sudden we have, you know, people warning against not to eat candy, don't eat too much candy, candy's bad for you.
1: Yes. Well, this kind of vilification of candy emerges at just the time that candy starts to become cheap and ubiquitous. That is, it's the manufactured candy, the factory candy that really sets off the alarm bells for many different kinds of reformers. Food reformers looked at that manufactured candy, and they said, look, this stuff is made out of, what, coal tar colors, glucose, which that's corn syrup, but in the day, glucose was considered an adulterant. Um, You know, there were accusations that there was plaster of Paris in the candy, that there was floor scrapings in the candy, that there was grease in the candy, just this idea that industrial candy was somehow filthy and made of filthy industrial waste, and that, that therefore the candy couldn't be wholesome and good at all. Um, and then there were the moral reformers who looked at candy, and especially, you know, the ways that candy was something that children would eat on their own, that it seemed to kind of fall outside of the norm, the normal ways of eating and moral reformers accused candy of leading children down all kinds of paths to vice smoking and especially you know you look at those chocolate cigars and the <laughs> licorice pipes okay, and you know, okay. they said look they're <laughs> learning to smoke and they're going to go on and smoke the real thing and the, the candy industry responded by saying well let's see now does that mean when they eat a little jelly baby they're going to become a cannibal i mean, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: mean
1: That's a fair response. Right, right. Um, Alcoholism was also laid at the feet of candy. There were a lot of moral reformers who felt that candy and alcohol were awfully close to each other, and especially as a new kind of understanding of chemistry came about that linked the sugars in alcohol with the sugars in candy. And some people believed that when you ate candy, it turned into alcohol inside of you, and that really candy eating was the first step toward drunken licentiousness. (sighs) So there were, you know, these kind of sound outrageous to us today. But on the other hand, we, too, have a kind of um, a, just a deep suspicion of certain kinds of artificial manufactured foodstuffs, and maybe for good reason. But what we see in the candy um, reforming history is a lot of this was just hysteria and superstition, and very little was actually rooted in the facts of the candy industry.
2: All right. Well, in fact, candy, um, because of the the makers, I mean, there was such a profit to be made on this uh, food, in quotation marks, Um, we're still, you know, the jury's still out on that one, right? Um, That the people, obviously, who were making the candy had a vested interest, indeed, and um, they wanted to prove that the candy was was pure. Um, So candy was not, it was one of the first uh, of the food trade to get in on this Pure Food Act, was it not?
1: Interestingly, it was the candy manufacturers themselves who went around and tried to persuade states to pass pure food laws that would govern the definitions of acceptable candy manufacture the candy industry went after every once in a while when a rogue candy maker would in fact put something bad in the candy they would go very they would go very aggressively after them because the candy industry was suffering from this terrible reputation of their product and they said how are we going to you know build our business if people think that we're producing poison so they became very active in promoting the idea of pure food laws as a way to, you know, improve the reputation of their product and way out in front of virtually any other kind of food manufacturer, which really this surprised me when I discovered it in the archive because most of the stories of the food pure laws that we have today don't talk about candy at all. And yet when you go back to that turn of the century discussion about pure food reform, uh candy's really right in the middle of it.
2: Interesting. Who knew? <laughs> well, we, I want to talk about um, nu- the actual food substance of, of the food discussion about candy and nutrition. So we're going to take a short break. And as soon as we come back from our break, we're going to talk about candy as food.
0: listening to Born Day by TaxStar on heritageradionetwork.org.
1: kitchens.com you can enjoy decadent caramel brownies, hand-picked teas and fair trade coffee, oven-roasted chicken pot pies and so much more. Whether you're planning a dinner party, sending a gift or just want to try something new and delicious, Many Kitchens offers something for everyone. Help support small batch producers while you discover the best in artisanal foods from across the nation at manykitchens.com. Many Kitchens, the one-stop shop
0: for all things foodie.
2: Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm speaking with Samira Kawash, the author of Candy. Um, And I just was looking through some notes here, Samira, where Dr. Rachel Johnson, a nutrition professor at the University of Vermont, um, provides information that um, states only 6% of the added sugar in the American diet uh, – candy, I'm sorry – candy provides only 6% of the added sugar in the American diet, while sweet drinks and juice supply 46%. And you were just talking about that, that those sweetened juices um, were so high in sugar.
1: Yeah, well, I think this is, uh, you know, candy is such a highly visible form of sugar consumption, and it's so obviously not one of the ordinary foods of breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so I think it's easy to sort of look at candy and see it as really, um, you know, the, the, the scapegoat for a lot of our anxieties ar- around the role of sugar in our diet and the dangers, perhaps, of eating foods that are far away from the farm. Um, and yet, it, it's surprising to discover that candy really is such a small portion of the added sugars in our diet. It's, not, it's a highly visible form. Of added sugar, and so I think it's easy to sort of point at that. Now, uh, it's interesting too that the, the, the whole reform movement against the consumption of soda and sugar sweetened drinks has really gotten a lot of traction out of the idea that those sodas are liquid candy. And it really is the the reframing of soda as liquid candy that has enabled people to kind of get their minds around the idea that what's in that glass is, in fact, just as much sugar as the candy is. And that that fascinates me because it's really the candy that allows us to see this kind of highly sugared treat as something that we maybe don't want to be eating as our main food.
2: Right. It's, it has its synonymous, somehow its name is synonymous with um evilness or something bad yes. for you. It's true. You're right. It is, has been vilified. You're right. Well, there, you know, this whole backlash of, of um, uh, so much candy on the market in the at the turn of the century, the, the night at the early uh, 20th century, um, they, I mean, obviously people had to find a new way to market it. And our nutrition balance, that old pyramid system, began to take shape and change as well. And um, So then along came Hershey, Milton Hershey.
1: (laughs) Well, Milton Hershey was the first one to capitalize on a new way of thinking about food. He came up with this uh, slogan for his chocolate bar that was more sustaining than meat. And the (laughs) idea that you could compare chocolate bar and meat, that seems a little, um, you know, far-fetched. But within the framework of the new nutritional thinking of the turn of the century, this made quite a lot of sense. The new scientific views about food and nutrition were changing the way people saw food. What what was food in the past? Well, you know, it was what your mother fed you. It was what your religion told you to eat. It was what you had always eaten. But scientists, especially chemists, uh, coming out of a, a new organic chemistry began to say, no, that's not what food is. Food is chemicals. Food is made up of these basic macronutrients that we need, and those are protein, and carbohydrates, and fats. And if you look in all the foods, that's what you find. So that must be what food really is. But once you've changed food from roast beef and scrambled eggs to protein, carbohydrate, and fat it starts to become much easier to substitute one food for another food. And this was really important to people who were concerned about poverty in food because they were like, oh, we can teach people to choose lower-priced sources of calories, lower-priced sources of protein, carbohydrates, um, and substitute because one, one kind of protein is the same as another kind of protein in this way of thinking. This was also fantastic for candy because what is candy? It's protein, carbohydrates, and fats in varying proportions, and candy fit very well into this new scientific way of thinking about food, because sure enough, what's in candy, milk and eggs and nuts and chocolate and all of these things are made of the same chemicals as all the other kinds of food. So once you've transformed food into chemicals, candy's food just like everything else, there's nothing wrong with it.
2: Hmm. And then, of course, calories equaled energy, right? And then, and then there was that whole push for, for energy from a candy bar.
1: Oh, sure, calories are a good thing in the early 20th century. This is before Americans have become so obsessed with obesity and overweight. Um, at this time, people are much more worried about getting enough to eat, and there's a the whole idea that some people, you know, there's undernutrition is a real problem. So low-priced, dense calories are very valuable, and there's an idea, too, that you need energy to work, you need energy to have adventures, you need energy to come and fight World War I, which is coming right around the corner here in the teens. And that energy in the form of candy is an ideal way to get a quick boost and to be able to, you know, dominate in those activities. And so candy really fit itself into this new American style of fast and energetic and strong and, you know, fighting the war. There was really a way that candy aligned itself with these very positive values. All
2: right now, and and I mean, these were all wonderful ways to get consumers to eat more candy. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the war rations. I mean, that chocolate and can, candy, in some form or another, were always included in in the soldiers' war rations.
1: Yes, well, the military was very interested in, you know, the question of how to maintain the energy of their troops. And it had, the German military had actually started testing the efficacy of candy as a, you know, as a, on forced marches, for example, to maintain energy. And once the German army started looking into sugar, the Americans were, you know, they didn't want to fall behind. And so, by the teens, uh, candy was an important aspect of military rations and it was for this reason to provide energy and especially in emergency situations they came up with the idea of chocolate bars as emergency rations which was, you know, a chocolate bar is a great thing to have if you're stranded, you know, on a raft in the, middle of the ocean but the only problem was when they started giving soldiers chocolate bars as emergency rations they tended to just eat the chocolate bars and not wait for the emergency so it <laughs> <laughs> was a little too effective.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I heard you um, speak uh, last week at for the Culinary Historians of New York and something that was so interesting We, I mean everyone was sort of aware that chocolate was part of the war rations and then you talked about this kind of tasteless form of chocolate because of just of what you mentioned so the soldiers wouldn't eat it right away yeah. they made it not so tasty
1: well, this, you know, so in World War I, they gave the soldiers some chocolate as, you know, hopefully an emergency ration, and the soldiers ate it. Oops, not good. So when World War II was kind of gearing up in the late 30s, you know, the military planners are looking and they're seeing the way the wind is blowing. And so the quartermaster who's responsible for provisioning the troops went to Hershey Company, to the chief chemist, and said, hey, could you formulate a chocolate bar for us that would be for emergency rations? And it has to have a lot of calories, and it also has to taste not so good. (laughs) A little better than a boiled potato is what he is reputed to have said, because they wanted to be sure that when the emergency came, this chocolate bar would be available. Well, unfortunately, you know, so they packed it full of, I think, oat flour, and it it, it turned out to be about as bad as you would expect, and uh, that did solve the problem. Those were called the
2: D-rations, and... uh, they were not very popular. <laughs> so so tasteless that they wouldn't yeah. even they had a lot left over, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we do have this problem with um, sugar being, you know, blamed for weight gain. And as you mentioned earlier in our discussion, uh, you know, this this rampant obesity, which was not the case in centuries before. And now we've we're faced with um, you know, too many empty calories, too much snack food, or what, we're not sure what the cause is, that's still up for debate. So sugar is still the bad guy.
1: Yeah, I, I think that we're, you know, we're coming to a, a much more nuanced understanding of how sugar, you know, is processed metabolically, and how, you know, our, met- our metabolism may interact with different kinds of foods over time. Um, I think that, you know, it, it is easy to sort of, point to candy and say, hey, that must be the problem, because look at it, it it certainly doesn't look like food. It's obviously not meant to nourish. It's just a treat. Um, And somehow scapegoating candy and vilifying candy and liquid candy, too, these days, you know, maybe that will solve our problem. And I think what really strikes me in that way of thinking is that it it exonerates all the rest of the processed foods that we eat and how much, you know, if it's true that candy is 6% of the added sugar and so does another 40% of the added sugar, that leaves, like, the other 50% of added sugar coming from someplace else. And that's in the rest of the food we eat. And I think that it's, you know, when I look at the ways that, you know, people shake their fingers at jelly beans and lollipops, but, you know, go to the grocery store and buy, you know, those breakfast cereals and the breakfast bars and the nutrition bars. And, you know, the fruit snacks, and those are all different kinds of shapes of candy, too. Um, but we don't call them candy. They seem more like food because of the pictures on the package, I guess. And uh, it's easy to kind of just forget about that.
2: Right. So. <laughs> uh, um, you know, and, and something that somebody also mentioned, um, actually a company here in Brooklyn, a little bit, that makes wonderful candies. But you go in like a bakery. You go into a shop, and you can get these wonderful individual candies, um, as opposed to going into the local drugstore and get these huge plastic bags filled with candies. You know, that's all. the other thing is too much, you know, too much is not always too much of a good thing.
1: Right? <laughs> well, I think that one of the great things about these new handmade, high-quality candy alternatives is that they remind us about what candy really is, which is it is a beautiful, lovely treat to enjoy. And I think enjoying it in those forms where it's, you know, high quality, highly delicious, um, that's a great way to enjoy candy. I think that, you know, the, the Major manufacturers of candy would like us to continue eating it by the handful, and I'm kind of appalled at the new kinds of packaging that seem to encourage, you know, for example, the candy that comes in cup holders, and you can just stick it in your van and, you know, eat it all day long. I mean, I think this really does encourage a kind of, you know, overconsumption that benefits only the candy seller and nobody else. Um, I think, you know, thinking about candy, taking it back to its to its origins as a luxury food helps us have a, a much better relationship to that, which is, you know, enjoy it, but know that you're enjoying candy and keep it in its place.
2: That's right, indeed. And um, certainly what we i think the only thing that we we miss are some of those retro candy wrappers we had so if you anyone looks at some of the old candies there are certain shops around that everyone can find some of those old fashioned candies still there those that are still being produced and the candy wrappers of course had their own story of coming about to make they make the candy more sanitary necessarily
1: oh <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, one of the problems that the candy industry had, not so much today. We have, you know, Mars and Hershey, and there's like six kinds of candy bars, so it's easy to tell the difference, but, you know... Go back a hundred years when candy bars were really coming into their own, and there were you know thousands of new candy bars coming on the market all the time. There's only so many different ways that you can combine candy bar in- ingredients to get unique products so a lot of the differentiation and a lot of the identity of different kinds of candies really was in the wrapper you know that you would create a brand by creating a distinctive wrapper and a distinctive name and a distinctive kind of you know brand around your around your product, much like today but but it's really fun to go back to the old candy wrappers and see just all the variety that there was and all of the creativity and thinking of funny names for candy and catching people's attention with some kind of novelty or some kind of you know surprising name like some of them that were a little bit, you know, jazz, agey, like Damn Fino Candy, or Fat Emma Candy, or, or Black Bottom Candy. Um, Gypsy Rose, who was a famous stripper, had a candy bar named after her. So that was really a really colorful kind of um, culture of producing these different candies, and their different kinds of wrappers, and their different kinds of names.
2: Well, certainly the the um, aphrodisiac. Um uh, proponent of chocolates were have have always been has always been around, and uh, and that wasn't lost on the candy makers either. I'm sure there were a lot of there was a lot of advertising involving the erotic with the the sensual pleasure of the candy.
1: Right. yeah and especially when you look at the advertising for um, boxed chocolates which have traditionally um, you know been considered as an appropriate sort of romantic gift for a man to give a woman and the advertising for those boxed chocolates really emphasized the, the sensual pleasures that a woman is going to enjoy with these uh, with these chocolates oftentimes the pose is the woman lying on a couch or standing in a kind of provocative pose and holding that morsel of chocolate to her lips you know really suggestive of a kiss or you know some kind of um, oral pleasure and and the advertising frequently emphasizing that a man who wants to really you know understand a woman wants to seduce a woman can do it with chocolate that chocolate becomes a kind of sexual surrogate in the 20th century because it is associated especially with women's sexual pleasures
2: Mm. well candy is food and it should be taken in small amounts and enjoyed um, appropriately and with valentine 's Day coming up, I sure hope that chocolate is not left out of my diet that's for <laughs> sure <laughs> well, Samira, your information is is always wonderful, and it's a pleasure to uh, to have you share it with us and and i um, I do encourage people to take a look at the book. It is uh, quite an eye opener into the history of what went on in the candy industry, and again, the book is called and Help me out here. Candy, A Century of Panic and Pleasure. Panic or pleasure, but it was both (laughs) panic and pleasure candy. Samira Kawash, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
2: And you've been listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.